Yeah, so the the technical term uh, for what I suffered was uh, lack of talent. <laughs> um, so at, at school, not many are afflicted with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, at school, I did my uh, it's called a flying scholarship, so you know sixteen hours, uh, the equivalent of a private pilot's license, and then at university. Um, back back then, they've changed the system partly because of what I went through. You could do the first part of your flying training, so um, something like a hundred hours. Um, I finished that relatively early at university because I was keen and I would just get through it in the summertime. It was a great summer job when I wasn't at university. And then I had two years where um, my university air squadron was really about doing the odd flight here and there, but generally being a kind of practicing to be a junior officer, looking out for the other uh, officer cadets from the university air squadron. Um, then I did, a, at the end of university, I took a gap year. So I went skiing. I was a, a ski guide in the French Alps. Probably the best job I've ever had. I was going to say, it sounds horrible. Yeah, yeah, that was a tough one. Um, and then officer training, nine months. Um, and then I was right place, right time for a great opportunity. At the end of officer training, um, there's always a backlog in uh, pilot training in the UK. Um, it's, it's been in the media quite a lot recently, actually. It's not getting any better. Um, Again, a double-edged sword. You've got to wait for your flying training, but there's some cool opportunities. So they sent me off to Tokyo uh, for a year, Tokyo, Japan, to be a, basically a, a very junior liaison officer um, over there working for United Nations Command. Um, lots of Americans uh, in that part of the world. So we would fly in and out of uh, Korea, Guam, other bases in that region, all around uh, Japan. So I did that for a year. Uh, great experience. Wouldn't, wouldn't have changed anything um, about that. Point is, by the time I got back to the second phase of my flying training, a good three or four years had gone. Um, and in that time, my skill fade was, you know, extreme. Uh, so I remember vividly actually being sat in the cockpit of uh, a Fireflies, the, the name of the aircraft, with my instructor. And my instructor turns to me and he says, OK, Graham, take me up. We'll bash the circuit. Then we'll go and do some stalling. We'll do some radio navigation. And if we've got time at the end, we'll do some aerobatics. Um, and everyone else in my course, they finished the first phase of their flying training the Friday before. This is the Monday. So they had the weekend for skill fade. I did mine, you know, three or four years ago. And I'm sat there thinking, well, in fact, not thinking. I just said to the guy, look, no, uh, you're going to have to take me back to straight and level because it's been three or four years. I, I'm not able to do that, I'm afraid. Welcome to the Transition Drill Podcast. Joining me for episode 83 is Graham Little. Graham served 10 years in the UK's Royal Air Force and achieved the rank of captain. Initially, he went in as a pilot, but then transferred into intelligence. He had deployments in Northern Ireland, Afghanistan, and Iraq, as well as spending some time in Las Vegas while assigned to a drone unit. Graham transitioned out in 2016 and is a founding member of the UK tech startup, Sciacom. Sciacom creates software that supports law enforcement in the fight against online child sexual abuse, as well as terrorism. Today, Graham has moved to California and is Sciacom's Director of Sales for North America. Thank you for taking the time to listen, and if you can, please like and leave a rating for the podcast. So this is something, transitioning is something quite dear to my heart. Um... And I guess, you know, reflecting on it, going from pilot to intelligence officer was, and I'd, I'd like to think folk would kind of uh, get something out of this, dealing with failure at a relatively young age at the start of your career. And, you know, that can either make it or break it for you and embracing failure and what I've learned from it 
Um, I'm sure that you've got listeners that will be going through similar things, you know, maybe not making the SWAT team or maybe not making X, Y, and Z. And, uh, you know, we don't lose, we learn. No, that's the, the gist of what this podcast is about is just, it's about each of my guests individual experience with their transition and ultimately how their transition stories are going to resonate with the right listener. Who's going to be able to relate. Love it. Love it. Going backwards though. So last year was your first time going to Coachella? Yeah. Yeah. First, first music festival in about what, two or three years, uh, with, with COVID certainly the first time in Coachella, second North American music festival. Uh, but first time in Coachella and first time eyes wide open and, and saw some things, uh, that I, you, you think you've seen it all at music festivals going to Glastonbury in the UK, but Coachella was something completely different. Um, a younger crowd, a lot more Instagram, interesting things. The people watching was off the charts. Loved it. Loved you plan it. on going again this year? Cause it's basically right around the corner. Uh, yeah, no, you know what? The, the reason we, we, we went last year, we got free accommodation from my friend, a fellow entrepreneur, uh, who's just bought a house there. Um, and they just bought it and they'd never seen it before. And we said, well, we can go in and just give it a once over for you. Take a look. So we got free accommodation. Um, and having seen even the price of a motel six to go back, we figured nah, we won't bother this year. So, uh, it, it was a one hit wonder, but great time. So Harry Styles and Shania Twain on stage. Oh, fantastic. Absolutely. Fantastic. Yeah. The, the one thing, of the, and I'm sure it's probably that way with any major, concert that goes on anywhere in the world the the accommodations in that immediate area for that time period when the concerts are going on just go through the roof yeah big style um and at 39 i i ain't getting in a in a tent in the desert again i could have been there you know professionally i'm not going to do that privately there's uh, I've, I've got a, a lower tolerance for that kind of thing these days so yeah i won't be going back in a tent i'm afraid for those listening they obviously could hear your accent where are you from uh, so I'm from Scotland in the UK, uh, specifically in Scotland, Edinburgh, which is the capital city. Uh, a lovely, lovely place, a real fairy tale uh, city to, to kind of grow up and live in. Uh, JK Rowling, the author of Harry Potter, she's from there. Um, so I don't know if you've been over that way before. No. Um, what what sets Edinburgh apart is the, the history. You know, we've got a thousand year old castle on an extinct volcano. Uh, we've got a royal palace that is over a thousand years old as well. The Royal Yacht Britannia, the the late Queen's uh, uh, super yacht, if you like, that's docked there. Um, and there's lots of private schools and universities in Edinburgh, and they're all incredible Gothic era uh, buildings. And that's what J.K. Rowling took uh, as her inspiration for Hogwarts. So it really is. You know, we don't have Disney World in the UK, but we've got places like Edinburgh where people can come and just you know revel in the in the history. It's a great place to live. Big family, small family? Uh, relatively small, one big sister, two years older than me, Amy, um, and two parents, uh, as I refer to them, happily divorced. Uh, so my dad remarried, um, but both uh, parents still got on really well. Um, um, so yeah, really loving family. Couldn't have really hoped for a better uh, family setup uh, in life. So yeah. Uh, love them to bits, and that's one of the one of the tricky things about moving away from you know home. Uh, despite doing you know lots of interesting stuff in the military before and being away from home, being away at this stage in life with parents getting older, um, you know it, it, it's always in the back of your mind. You know was this a selfish move? But of course, with their support, it makes it all that easier to come over here. And the world's a small place. You know you're only ten hours away from uh, from getting back to them, plus a bit of jet lag, so not too bad. Mom and dad both work. Uh, no, they're both retired. I mean, uh, at, w- growing up. Yeah. Uh, so dad worked for, I guess, the equivalent of um, of your IRS. 
uh, a tax man, as I used to call it. Uh, but he got involved in some interesting stuff, some investigations into uh, the kind of dark and mysterious world of, uh, of, of tax evasion. And um, I remember he showed me a photo with um, our equivalent of the Navy SEALs, the uh, former SAS folk, helping him out with some uh, w- with some surveillance stuff. So um, on, on one side, in kind of IRS, you know, he sat in an office and then towards the, the end of his career he was getting involved in some quite um, quite sexy stuff, I think, for, for <laughs> IRS uh, or our equivalent of IRS. Uh, and my mum was a, was a music teacher. She was a piano teacher. Um, and one of my biggest regrets in life is is not tapping into that resource from an early age because wouldn't it be great just to jump on a piano and be able to, to tinkle away? I can just about do chopsticks. <laughs> so really regret that. So uh, mum, if you're listening, uh, I'm so sorry I didn't pay more attention uh, to music, but there's still time. There's still time. Did you have an interest in music as a, as a young boy? It's funny. I think in my DNA, uh, you know, I, I, I can I can hold a beat and uh, you know, I, I know a thing or two about music, um, and I guess as part of a, a midlife crisis, uh, my my best friends and I back home. There's three of us. Um, this is slightly embarrassing, but it is what it is. Um, I, I went through a period in my life when I realised, you know, I've never owned a skateboard, I've never learnt surfing, uh, and I've never been a DJ. But why not? So in the space of about two months, I bought myself a skateboard. Rubbish at that. Uh, although not fallen off yet. Not broken anything anyway. Um, learned to surf. Rubbish at that. But I'm in the, the right part of the world to get better. Um, and I bought some DJ decks. And the three of us, we, we call ourselves the Scottish House Mafia. <laughs> um, and we went from just you know playing around with it in, 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 in our garage um, to, to being paid for it. We would do like weddings and then we did uh, other friends' social events uh, and it was great fun. So there is a bit of music DNA somewhere in me um, and, and DJing was actually a way of, uh, of laying that out. But my girlfriend, my fiance, would argue that um, I'm also a rubbish DJ. Uh, she heard me do it once and she wasn't very pleased. Uh, well, sh- she was pleased because it gave her something to laugh about. But um, there is a bit of music in me, but it, it's never been part of my career, no. Hey, it could be funny though, you could end up getting a job because somebody might mistake you for Swedish House Mafia. Well, that's exactly what we're going for. Scottish House Mafia. It's a bit tongue in cheek. We're, we're not suggesting that we're as good as them, but uh, you know, we might get picked up somewhere down the line. We'll see. We'll see. So, growing up, was academics a drive for you? Not really. Um, I was very lucky. My my, my parents um, my parents got my sister and I into uh, a, a private high school. Um, you know, get, they they gave up stuff so that we we could have a you know a slightly better start in life than than, than they would have had, um, which is great and you know truly thankful for that. Um, and although the school I went to, you're talking smaller classes, so you know more time with the teacher, not necessarily pushing us into one must get an A in every in every single subject or the world's going to end. But certainly channeling um, you know myself and my sister towards uh, a, a university path or a college path, um, which might not be you know such a specific path to to other schools in the area. So um, academics, I'm not about getting straight A's. I'm about you know doing enough to get me in. I, I guess I, I, I'm an efficient academic, I suppose. You know, <laughs> getting the B that I need to get into college or university, um, and and kind of took it from there. So yeah, not not huge academics, just doing. Doing enough, not doing the bare minimum, but doing enough to, to get to where I need to uh, to be with with efficiency. What about sports? Yeah, so sport was uh, w- was a bigger part of my my school life. Um, Scotland's uh, big rugby nation, um, so rugby was the the school sport, um, and I guess I was kind of uh, lucky or unlucky, depending which way you look at it. Um, the the schools that play rugby against each other in Scotland, there's only about 20. It's quite a small community. Scotland population of about 5 million, so a, a relatively small country within the UK. Um, so 
these schools, some of them are massive. Some of the Edinburgh schools, um, you know, 2,000 kids in a high school compared to mine, I think we had maybe 300 kids. So the rugby team, the senior rugby team, uh, if there are 15, 15 guys that can stand up, run straight, catch a ball sometimes, <laughs> chuck a ball, kick a ball, you're in the rugby team. Um, I'm five foot eight. Um, I'm, I don't weigh much, so I was out in the wing. I guess I'd be the equivalent of a kind of a wide receiver. Um, and I was the 15th guy in my year who could, uh, you know, play rugby. So I made the first 15 rugby team, which is quite a cool thing to, you know, I played first, I was in the team. Um, in other schools, I would have barely made maybe their fifth or sixth <laughs> team. So on one hand, we would play rugby against these massive schools and get beaten to smithereens. It could be quite embarrassing at times. Um, but on the other hand, I played first 15 rugby for my school. Um, and then that transitioned into playing rugby um, at a relative, relatively good level at university. Um, and then also into the Air Force as well, where I played a bit of rugby. So um, what I love about sport, um, it opens so many doors. You know, it, the, the, what you get from the teamwork from a really young age. Um, and also, you know, if you put effort and you listen to your coaches and you bring stuff together on the day, when it comes off, it's an amazing feeling than just turning up and getting lucky. You know, um, I ski to quite a high standard. That's really been my, my, my kind of main sport. I was a ski instructor uh, at university and that's also taken me all over the world, a bit more of a solo sport, uh, but it's great to, again, um, skiing at quite a relatively high level with the Air Force. So I skied for the Air Force um, and everything from, you know, training your body physically. And then there's equipment in skiing as well, of course. So taking your ski from, you know, something that's been sat on the shelf for six months into this finely tuned uh, bit of equipment with a razor sharp edge and, you know, the right wax applied for the right conditions at the right part of the ski and the right ski for the right discipline um, and bringing all that together into a package and then getting down a downhill. Um, it is a scary prospect when you're at the top of a downhill and you're looking down thinking, okay, there's no one in front of me. No one can get in the way. It is cleared for me. And my job now is to get from here down there as fast as I can in a straight as line as possible. Um, it is really quite scary, but it's also about the most fun thing you can do uh, on, on, on God's green earth. Um, so yeah, skiing, an another really good facet of training, applying that training and relative success. Was it slalom or, or downhill or just little speed downhill skiing so the four disciplines we did them all so slalom giant slalom you know weaving between uh, and then you've got uh, super giant slalom which is the kind of precursor to downhill which really is you know when you see it on tv it doesn't do it justice um you can't quite see how steep these uh, these slopes are and also the thing that people don't really see is they actually ice the slope when you're skiing in holiday and you hit ice um, you know, I can already think of my mum uh, when I was a kid when she's in the ice and you know, screaming behind me, um, understandably, because it's not a, not a nice place to be on sheet ice and maybe your skis aren't gripping. When you see the downhillers do it in the Olympics at that kind of level, um, they're actually injecting water into the snow to make it ice so they can hold up. Um, so it is steep as anything and it is icy as anything. A nightmare for a punter skier on holiday, but for an athlete, that's what you want because you want just firm, hard, and you can get as much speed as possible. So all four disciplines um, and yeah, great, great fun. Anyone, anyone that skis that has never raced, it's that next level. If you want to really challenge yourself and um, really give yourself something to think about on those uh, summer days, when you're thinking back to that downhill you did, it's a phenomenal experience. We'd highly recommend and you said you did that as an instructor while you were in college? Yeah, so I was very lucky. Um, as a kid, we'd go on ski holidays. Um, and then in the summer, I'd go and um, uh, 
practice or, or learn, you know, how to become a better skier on the dry slope, just the local dry slope in Scotland. No snow at all, just on that plastic mat stuff. The kind of stuff that if you fall, you know, you're just asking for a broken finger, not much fun. Um, but really good proving ground for then getting on snow. Um, really good transition. So skied all my life. Um, and then at university, I was part of, uh, I think you guys call it the OTC over here, kind of officer training corps. Um, so I was part of the Air Force OTC at university. Um, and it was through that there was a, a NATO school in uh, Bavaria in Germany where they would teach uh, teach folks like me who could ski to be instructors so that we could do adventures training with our, our, our fellow, um, you know, airmen. Uh, so that's where I became an instructor. And then that kind of got me into the scene with the Air Force skiing um, and then trained with the team and then got selected for the team, which was uh, an amazing two months off uh, from what people might consider normal work in the Air Force to go and actually be paid to ski and train uh, and I, I guess to a stretch of the imagination a professional skier for two months of my life so um, you know I'm sure people could argue against that but but I'm going to stick with that professional skier for two months loved it. So there was actually a connection to the military with them putting you through the instructor school. Correct yeah yeah two weeks um, downhill skiing you know how to get someone to go from never seen a ski before to getting down a kind of a red slope um, and then the, the second week was actually uh, with a, a, you know, carrying weight on your back, cross-country skis, you know, head that direction for X miles, dig into the snow, um, have the worst night of your life in a snow, uh, in a snow cave. Um, and then in the morning, you know, map and compass, get to this hut. Um, so that was another great experience actually through skiing. Not one I've repeated ever since. I'm about, you know, saving up paying money to be taken to the top of the hill and then skiing <laughs> down, um, not about dragging, uh, you know, me and my belongings for miles up a hill um, to get, you know, wh that 1% of that time actually going downhill using gravity. Um, but good fun, good fun, a challenge for sure, that, that kind of stuff. Going back to something you said when you were playing rugby, as a young man, were you already kind of driven? Because you, you mentioned how you saw that when the coach put the plan together and the team executed the plan as they trained, you were successful. Did you find as a young man to where you saw that big picture in the sense of the importance of preparing for your life? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think it's probably in hindsight that you appreciate that sort of thing as, as a young person. Um, but certainly it's the sort of thing they look for in the military, you know, when they're selecting, um, as I was at the time, you know, uh, halfway through my university, um, uh, a sponsorship to, to join the Air Force as, a, as an officer and, and as a pilot. Um, and that's exactly what they were looking for, you know, teamwork, you know, does this person have that, that, that ethos, that background, that, that experience, that when we take them, they are not the finished article, but, you know, maybe a rough diamond that we can polish up and then we can turn into, mold into, you know, that pilot, that intelligence officer, logistics officer, whatever that may be. Um, definitely stuff they look for. So a, a great proving ground for anyone that's, you know, interested in getting into the military or the police or that kind of, um, you know, that, that kind of career teamwork. Um, no better place for, for holding those, uh, that skill set than, than, than on the field. For yourself, did you have much military in your family growing up? Nope. Next to nothing. You know, pretty standard. My my late grandfather, uh, you know, fought in the Second World War. That's it. Um, my my story of getting into the Air Force uh, is uh, somewhat embarrassing, but, but quite topical, actually, because... Um, He's just released another film. Uh, so the film I'm talking about is the, the first Top Gun, 
when I was uh, 1985, I think it came out, so I would have been, you know, un certainly under the age of five, and I saw this film, Top Gun. Um, and it, it's really weird and slightly embarrassing how a movie with Tom Hanks can really shape your Tom life. Tom Cruise. Sorry, Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise. <laughs> wow, maybe not such a huge fan after all. Uh, but yeah, how a Tom Cruise uh, film can can play such a pivotal role in your life. So I saw the, the action scenes of, you know, Maverick and Goose and Iceman, you know, doing all their, their things. Uh, look at me with the hands already, uh, can't, can't put it down. Um, and, and from, you know, probably age, age of five, that's what I was going to do. Um, and nothing else. It was going to be that, that, and that alone. Um, and to a certain extent, really proud that I achieved that goal. Um, but then there was a bit of a pivot in my Air Force career, which uh, no doubt we'll talk about uh, later on. So as a young boy coming out of high school, your plan was to go to college? Yeah, yeah. So uh, in the UK system with the Air Force, the Army and the Navy um, and the Marine Corps, um, you, you're accelerated if you have a degree. Uh, so it was always my plan. OK, I'll go to university. Um, and I knew they had the OTC thing there as well. So you can start the UK system. You can start your flying training while you're at university. You can get sponsored to be at university. Not not a huge amount of money, but, um, you know, certainly as a student to get that additional income it is great. But the most important thing is you can secure your position in the military. So whilst my peer group were all thinking, oh, what are we going to do with our degrees? You know, um, am I going to get a job as a lawyer? Um, you know, other, other career paths, I already knew, well, um, I, I got in second year of, of a four-year degree, so I knew I had something waiting for me, um, which again can be a double-edged sword actually, because you know you've got your place. So my academics, I took my foot off the gas and I started to concentrate on other things um, like skiing, um, entrepreneurialism, um, and yeah, just about scraped through academically. So that, you know, that's maybe an interesting thing. If, if I could change anything going back, I might've just focused a little bit more because that degree, that bit of paper, when you leave the military, it, for me, it didn't really matter, but it could have been the difference between getting a really good job or getting a slightly average job. For me, it didn't really matter, like I say, but um, you know, don't take your foot off the gas academically. It's really important. Well, you segue nicely because you talk about being an entrepreneur while you're in college. You actually started a business that you were employing other students. What was that about? Yeah. Um, one of the best learning points of my life, uh, Paul, for sure. So uh, second year of university, um, surprise, surprise, college kids, they like to go out, have a drink, have a party. Um, you know, over here, back in the UK, no different. Um, of course, well, the main difference is back in the UK, at 18, you, you can be in, in bars and clubs. Um, so... There were four of us, still close friends to this day. Um, we saw somewhat of a loophole in the system where there was a nightclub that we knew in Edinburgh that was very quiet on the student night, uh, which was a Wednesday. Um, so we approached them with a plan saying, if we can fill this with our friends and our friends of friends, the network of network, if you like, um, we'll take the money on the door and you guys, you know, you've got lots of, lots of students buying, buying drink at the bar. Um, and they said, yeah, sure, let's give it a go. Um, three years later, we built up to um, quite the enterprise, employing, um, you know, I think about 50 plus other students um, as kind of our, our marketing uh, people, you know, generating wealth for themselves by getting their friends in. Um, you know, we had door staff, we had DJs, we had, it sounds like quite a kind of sordid affair. Believe me, it was, uh, it, it was a well-run operation. Uh, but the, the feeling of being able to employ people um, and pay people, it was a great feeling. You know, if I wasn't doing this, these 50 students, I'm not saying that we were giving them full-time salaries, right. but, um, you know, if, if we weren't doing this, if we hadn't, you know, taken this, this leap, um, taken this risk, 
these 50 people would all have to be finding jobs somewhere else. You know, it was a great feeling to be able to pay out, you know, for a job well done as well, and just generating wealth for each other, um, and a great, a great learning, learning experience. And I think anyone that is thinking about, uh, you know, entrepreneurialism. Um, have a go, do something, you know, sell, sell hoodies online, you know, um, start, start a podcast, do something. Um, if it goes nowhere, if it, if it's failure, you are better for it. You've learned something that you will maybe, well, hopefully not do again. You won't repeat that mistake. Um, you will take that learning and you'll apply it to something else and you'll be that bit better at it next time. You know, a bit like skiing or playing rugby, you know, we trained that didn't work out. What can we learn from that? Lessons identified, something that the military does so, so well, you know? And I think in, in business, um, people could do that a lot better. You know, we don't lose, we learn. And if you can keep that, that cycle going, that, um, that flywheel effect, you're better for it every, every time um, in the military, in sport, in entrepreneurialism as well. Was there never a point that there, for you looking at, the way you were growing this small business, that it could be something that you would have pivoted at that point in your life and followed it? That, sir, is a good question. So I remember um, I'm a 21-year-old kid. I've got my dream job set up. I'm going to be in the Air Force. I'll do, at the time, I think it was nine months of officer training. Then I'll finish off my flying training and I was going to be a Red Arrow, you know, our equivalent of the uh, the Blue Angels or the, uh, uh, the Thunderbirds. Uh, I was going to be a single set fast jet pilot. Couldn't wait. Loving it. Meanwhile, I've got this business that's generating decent, decent money for, for, for a, a college kid. And folk around me were saying, Graham, you know, maybe just do this, you know, take that model, do it in a, in another nightclub, do it in another city, you know, do, do concerts, do sporting events. You know, there's clearly money to be made in events and we've proven we can do it. But no, at the time, Nothing had changed since stage of five. I want to be a maverick. You know, it was that or, or nothing. So um, we didn't go down that path and I went down the military path. So a, a, an interesting kind of first fork in the road for me to make a decision. Was it that way or that way? But in the end, quite an easy decision to make really. It was uh, still dead set in the military. And so you entered the military what year? Uh, 2006. And from your parents' perspective, were they supportive of you wanting to be in the military or, or was it something that they would have much rather you'd gone and met a lawyer or a doctor or something else? Yeah, probably classic dynamic, you know, dad's um, keen for it. It's something the boy always wanted to do. Um, he's, um, you know, they, they, they gave me a great education, a great head start in life um, and he's achieved his goal. You know, he's, he's, he had this ambition and he's, he's worked hard at it. He's applied himself and he's got himself one of the very few places that year uh, or positions that year to, to be selected, to be sponsored at uni, to be a pilot um, in the Royal Air Force. Um, I, I still scratch my head how I managed to do it because it was fiercely, fiercely competitive at the time. Um, my mum, on the other hand, probably would rather I'd been an accountant or something at the time um, with that classic dynamic, if you like. But again, just really proud that, you know, something I wanted to do, something I'd set my, 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 my life goal was to, to get in the Air Force as a pilot uh, and I achieved that. And she was, you know, intensely proud. Uh, they, they both were. Had you had any flying time or, or as a, a young boy or did you do anything on your own? prior to even going towards college or the military related to flying? So quite lucky in my education at, uh, at high school, uh, the army, the air force and the Navy, they, they come around and they're effectively looking for talent. Um, at the time you don't think of it that way. You think of, Oh, cool. Um, I can go and spend two weeks in the summer at basically a flying camp. You get your equivalent of your private pilot's license um, and they pay you to do it. I'm thinking this is too good to be true. <laughs> so, um, 
uh, a humble brag, I, I could fly an aircraft uh, solo before I could legally drive a car solo. Um, so that was quite cool. Um, so they had me at high school and then at university, I joined the what we called the University Air Squadron, the equivalent of the OTC. Um, and then that was four years of, uh, you, you're basically a reservist. I'm sure it's the same over here, basically a reservist. And then at the weekend, you're off, you know, flying little, little aircraft uh, locally instead of, uh, you know, maybe... Well, I don't know, twiddling your thumbs, wasting your time, whatever I would have been doing otherwise. So yeah, they had me at high school uh, and then university. So it was a nice transition into, you know, the Air Force proper. You're out of college, you're into the military, you're following your dreams of becoming a pilot. You've been accepted into that program. You mentioned getting sponsored. Could you have made it through the sponsorship without having gone to that flying training while you were in high school? Or would it have been more, a lot more difficult? Uh, well, with that business that I also had at college, um, it, no, it would have been fine. Um, the the sponsorship is it, it, it's it's not a, it's not a life changing sum of money. It's more about okay, you are selected when you finish university. Assuming you pass university, you will get your place on initial officer training. That that was really the, the that was the jewel in the crown. You know, you had a spot at the start of the career that you wanted. Um, and I still had about two years left at university at that stage. Um, so it was less about the money and more about the, yeah, you're in, you know, you, you've got your foot in the door, you can walk through it. So then once you got in, you did ultimately make a transition to intelligence. What kind of changed your flight path, so to speak? Yeah, so the the technical term uh, for what I suffered was uh, lack of talent. <laughs> um, so. Not many are afflicted with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, at school, I did my, uh, it's called a flying scholarship. So, you know, 16 hours, uh, the equivalent of a private pilot's license. And then at university, um, back back then, they've changed the system, partly because of what I went through. You could do the first part of your flying training. So, um, something like 100 hours. Um, I finished that relatively early at university because I was keen and I would just get through it in the summertime. It was a great summer job when I wasn't at university. And then I had two years where um, my university air squadron was really about doing the odd flight here and there, but generally being a kind of practicing to be a junior officer, looking out for the other uh, officer cadets from the university air squadron. Uh, then I did, a, at the end of university, I took a gap year. So I went skiing. I was a, a ski guide in the French Alps. Probably the best job I've ever had. I was going to say, it sounds horrible. Yeah, yeah, that was a tough one. Um, and then officer training, nine months. Um, and then I was right place, right time for a great opportunity. At the end of officer training, um, there's always a backlog in uh, pilot training in the UK. Um, it's, it's been in the media quite a lot recently, actually. It's not getting any better. Um, but again, a double-edged sword. You've got to wait for your flying training, but there's some cool opportunities. So they sent me off to Tokyo. Uh, for a year, Tokyo, Japan, to be a, basically a, a very junior liaison officer um, over there working for United Nations Command. Um, lots of Americans uh, in that part of the world. So we would fly in and out of uh, Korea, Guam, other bases in that region, all around uh, Japan. So I did that for a year. Uh, great experience. Wouldn't, wouldn't have changed anything um, about that. Point is, by the time I got back to the second phase of my flying training, a good three or four years had gone. Um, and in that time, my skill fade was, you know, extreme. Uh, so I remember vividly actually being sat in the cockpit of uh, a Fireflies, the, the name of the aircraft, with my instructor. And my instructor turns to me and he says, OK, Graham, take me up. We'll bash the circuit. Then we'll go and do some stalling. We'll do some radio navigation. And if we've got time at the end, we'll do some aerobatics. Um, and everyone else in my course, they finished the first phase of their flying training the Friday before. This is the Monday. So they had the weekend for skill fade. 
I did mine, you know, three or four years ago. And I'm sat there thinking, well, in fact, not thinking, I just said to the guy, look, no, uh, you're going to have to take me back to straight and level because it's been three or four years. That I, I'm not able to do that, I'm afraid. So that was the first sign this is going to be tricky, you know, to get myself back in the groove. Um, and the military, they, they do not take prisoners. If if you're not making the grade, there's another, well, there's probably tens of thousands of young kids behind you that will sit in that seat um, and, you know, we'll give them a go because, you know, the funding's just not there to uh, to, to give people that, that extra time um, to, to bring them up to speed. So that was basically the beginning of the end. I suffered for another uh, year um, working uh, working like a, like a man possessed. That that is the hardest I've ever worked. Uh, well, maybe maybe not quite as, as hard as uh, the the times uh, when you're at war uh, with the military. But certainly that time, I remember working so hard, it didn't go unnoticed. But for the year uh, of that time, just always behind the drag curve, so much pressure, um, and never quite getting really above that that line. So after about a year, long story short. Um, Luke Graham, you're not going to make the grade. You're certainly not going to be a single set fast jet, single seat fast jet pilot. You're not going to be good enough for helicopters. Um, and in the thing, uh, multi-engine flying environment where you know um, it's none of it's easy for sure. But um, you know the, the the least difficult path, even that with a co-pilot next to you, you're just too much of a training risk. Um, so I got chopped is the the technical term. And I remember being told by the station commander, it's taken very seriously. So quite a high level, full bird colonel, um, Graham, we're going to have to chop you. And I knew this was coming. And it's amazing the weight coming off your shoulders. And there's a lot going on. And I'm thinking about my parents who, you know, no doubt my dad loved saying to his mates, oh, my son's a pilot in the Air Force, you know, great achievement. Um, to have to go and tell them, this ain't going to happen. I'm really sorry. But the weight lifted off my shoulders of, at least it's out of my hands. You know, I, I couldn't have tried any harder. I, I can sleep well that, I put everything into this and then telling my dad the best bit of parenting I think I've come across, told him on the phone. I remember vividly where I was feeling the pressure, not that my dad's some sort of monster that would come right. down on me, but tell me that, look, your son's not going to be part in there for us. I'm sorry, dad. And he just said without a blink, no worries. What are you going to do next? And I thought that is a plus parenting right there. You know, uh, great. Uh, and, you know, always love my dad. Um, well, love my dad generally, but loved him a lot at that point because I felt um, he's got my back here, you know, he, he's looking out for me. So that led to my first transition, really, uh, within the Air Force. So in my 10-year Air Force career, first two were spent officer training, Japan, and then being unsuccessful with flying training. Um, and that was a huge point in my life. You know, I could have walked away from the Air Force and the military there completely. That was an option. But I felt, I've put too much into this, this career. You know, flying's not going to work out for me. I can hold my head up high couldn't have worked any harder. And the beauty of that was the system recognized, you know, this uh, Graham Little, he's put a lot into this. If he can apply himself into something else, um, he, he could make a, have a successful career. So went down the intelligence route, thinking it was going to be James Bond and all that kind of sexy stuff, slightly different, but certainly doors were opened in intelligence that would never have been opened in flying. Um, and hence I stayed for another eight years doing some, I'd like to think some, some quite interesting punchy stuff. So after two years in and kind of coming to the end of your flying time, and you, you mentioned something previously where with that gap of three or four years, you kind of were behind the eight ball from the start of your training. Yeah. But through that process, were you always aware that like, I'm just not catching up or, or did you actually think in your head like, oh, I'm, I'm going to get there 
you know, and it just never got there? Yeah, that's a really interesting one. Uh, the, you know, the kind of the the mental dynamics of it all. Um, because it's such a big thing in your life, and because it's your number one goal, especially at that age, you know, you, you get older and wiser and you realize that, that, that there's more to life. But at that time, it's about, I've got to do this. And I wasn't going to quit. I was going to work as hard as I could so that two things could happen. Either I'm successful and I get my spot in a squadron or they take it away from me, but I wasn't going to quit. Um, and, and, you know, that tenacity, I th I, well, I don't think, I know it, it's a great quality to have. And then that translates really well into, you know, other facets of military life, personal life, um, you know, my, uh, my career post uh, the Air Force as well. So there's another great lesson, you know, tenacity to achieve something don't be disheartened if you don't make the goal, but do learn from it. You know, what could I have done differently? In my case, like I say, to hold my head up high and, uh, and say, I couldn't have worked any harder. You know, I just wasn't good enough. Um, you know, if you don't win a gold medal in sprinting, do you, are, are you an abject failure if you're not the same bolt? Perhaps not a great analogy to compare, you know, that one true superstar that, that we all know and love compared to the, the thousands of pilots that get through their training every year. But, you know, it's that kind of mentality. Don't be hard on yourself. And I was hard on myself for, quite some time after, but looking back on it, what a great learning experience. You know, I got a huge dollop of failure right at the start of my career and it could have made or made me or break me. Um, I'd like to think it, it did more of the, more of the former, you know, it, it made me and it made me a better junior officer um, and, and still had a great career in the Air Force because I didn't just pack it in and, and go and, you know, grow my hair and be become a civvy doing uh, something completely different. Well, like me, you wouldn't have grown your hair long. Yeah. Amen <laughs> to that, sir. Yeah, yeah. But you bring up a great point when you, when you use the analogy of an Usain Bolt. Uh, I'm not a sprinter. I'm thinking to the Olympics. It's usually, I'm guessing, eight other competitors. The eighth guy in that group knows that he's not going to beat Usain Bolt. <laughs> but on the flip side, he's not just some scrub that they grabbed out of the stand and said, hey, put on some shorts and run against this guy. He still competed and worked his way to that eighth spot. So to what you're saying is you didn't make the training necessarily as a pilot, but that doesn't mean you were never a pilot. Yeah, that. yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, um, the, I, I guess that comes down to coaching as well. You know, if you kind of takes me back to my, my rugby career at school. We were a small school. We were never expected to, to win, but, you know, it, t taking a beating can be, can be quite a great lesson. You know, you, you, you know that when, when life is hard, you can think back, you know what, this is hard, but I've kind of been here before. I've experienced this, you know, I've been beaten a hundred nil by a school that is 10 times the size of us. You know, we did quite well that day, actually. It wasn't 200 nil. Um, I'm not, I'm not advocating for a kind of loser mentality, but, you know, just keeping it all relative. You know, if you come eighth in the 100 metres, you, you're a champion in my eyes. You know, you might not get that gold medal, but, you know, think of their journey and what they've learned and what they've gone through, the sacrifice they've, met, they, they've made. They're going to have a far interesting autobiography than the person that realised, I don't want to come eighth in the 100 metres. I'm, I'm going to do something else. Right. You know? I, I, well, that's the way I see it. Maybe not everyone would, uh, would agree with that, but, you know, you, you learn a lot. I certainly learned a lot through not being the success that I thought I was going to be uh, to start with. You could even boil it down to even a, a little bit more minor than that. That eighth guy in that sp of, of sprinters is going to be on TV being shown as the representative of his country for the Olympics. 
I guarantee you the guy who was ninth who didn't get in that starting lineup would have done anything he could have just to be the eighth guy to at least get on camera and represent his country. 100%. And be there and have a shot at yeah. it. You know? Because you never know. Usain Bolt pulls a hamstring. You know, uh, Asafa Powell maybe, you know, gets a, a, a double do not start or whatever they call it and, and he's out and all of a sudden hang on you know now now I'm at least going to be sixth you know I'm only three away from a podium you've got to be in it to win it right so you also mentioned that when you came to the end the realization hey you weren't going to cut flying training they chopped you and you you referenced this and I don't know if this was where you were going with it would you have been given the option to actually separate from the military at that point and you chose to stay in or they were just chopping you from the training but you're there's no thought of releasing you from the military uh, no, no, I had the option to walk. Uh, you know, my contract, if you like, my, my commission, as we call it back home, was 18 years as pilot officer. Um, so, you know, w one of those wasn't going to happen. So I had the option to walk. Um, and a lot of my friends have walked. You know, I could have gone private aviation, got a few friends that ended up doing that. Um, I didn't have £100,000 uh, in my back pocket at the time to go and get that training. Um, and also, th th there's obviously more to the military than your than your your actual role you know it's a family thing uh, there is so much more to it it's a way of life and for me just to walk away and basically my the the, the one thing that stuck out most was essentially failed flying training like nah, nah, nah let's let's see what else is out there in the military let's um you know let's use the skills that i've developed through flying training through all the other officer training through what i've done in japan and let's apply that and let's make a positive difference uh, let's bring something to the party and not just walking away What's a career commitment for the UK military? Uh, did you just say 18 years? 18 years, yeah, yeah, for what I was doing. Um, so as a pilot, they, they, they want, it's not, an, it's not an inexpensive thing to, to train a pilot from start to finish. Surprise, surprise. So they, they, want your, um, you know, they want your blood, sweat and tears and they want some longevity out of that, uh, that, that paid back. So once you sign on the dotted line to enter the pilot program, you're signing for the full 18 years, not a series of re-enlistments? Correct. Correct. Um, after 18 years, you can, you know, sign on for more. I mean, it, it's not a prison. Um, you know, you, there are ways to get out of that. But, uh, you know, generally speaking, you know, you're a pilot in the Air Force. It's the cool, one of the coolest jobs in the world, uh, or certainly that's what pilots think. Um, so th no, no one really complains. I mean, if they said to you, you know, sign on the dotted line for 40 years, we all would have signed. And in comparison to American military, because you mentioned our Air Force, our Navy, and Top Gun, the movie, being kind of your catalyst, do, does the UK Air Force do ship landing, or is is there is it all just one branch of the flying arm of the military for the UK? No, so we'd be the same as the US. We have an Air Force, um, a Navy flying element, um, and then the Army, generally helicopters. Uh, we. Our Marine Corps guys don't have their own Marine Corps aviation wing. They would kind of be subconded to the Navy uh, to fly. So roughly speaking, the same as uh, the, the US military system, just albeit very much smaller, very much more compact. So there would have never been the component for your training had you stayed in to do carrier landings? Uh, no, there would have been if I was good enough to go single set fast jet. Uh, you know, I've, I've got a friend. I was just talking to to him today. He's coming over to Miramar as part of the Top Gun pro, uh, program as a UK exchange officer. So he's flown Typhoon, and now he'll fly F thirty five. I forget what variant A, B, and C that comes off the the carriers. So that would have been an option. Yeah. Transitioning to intelligence work was that when you got to come to Las Vegas for training? No, that was a bit later. Um, 
So the great thing about intelligence is it opens up lots and lots of doors. If you're a pilot, you'll fly that aircraft for at least two years, maybe the rest of your career. Um, and if you're not flying that aircraft, you might transition into a different aircraft. But, you know, you're a pilot. Uh, and I'm not belittling the, the, the art of flight and everything. And, you know, it, I'm still a big fan of uh, of flying. And, you know, a lot of my friends are pilots and, and it's a cool job. Don't, don't get me wrong. But variety is the spice of life. And with intelligence, um, I was a station intelligence officer looking out for threats uh, around the, the UK and kind of Europe. Um, then I was a squadron intelligence officer. So I got onto a fast jet squadron, not as a pilot, as the INTO, intelligence officer, as we call them, uh, as the INTO, um, and went all around with the, you know, the circus of a, of a fast jet squadron um, with the pilots, with the engineers, with the armors, with all the support mechanisms, going to exercises all over the world. Um, and then really nice facet of the way Western militaries are working at the moment. Uh, drones or remotely, remotely piloted aircraft systems, they have obviously uh, an intelligence element within them. Um, and the way we and uh, your uh, American militaries work, the, uh, there's a seat for an intelligence operative within the crew of, uh, of, of these uh, remotely piloted aircraft systems. So in a roundabout way, I got to scratch that itch of being part of uh, a flight crew, albeit not in the air uh, from afar. So I, I did that just outside of uh, Las Vegas for uh, for a short stint um, as part of uh, the program that the UK and the US have to, to bring the UK kind of on board with their remotely piloted uh, air system program. How long did you get to spend in Vegas? Uh, that was a really nice six months. Just long enough for me to realise that the strip is good for one or two <laughs> excursions, uh, and then you don't really go back unless been there, you're done that. visiting. Yeah, yeah, been there, done that. But no, great place to great place to live, and uh, you know, having the desert, UK doesn't have anything like that. So in my back garden, uh, you know, I had the the whole uh, Nevada desert to play with. Fantastic, um, and a really exciting, uh, completely different uh, role for me as an intelligence officer. So great time to have uh, uh, that. Uh, Great, great period of my life to have six months in Vegas. It was fantastic. Loved it. Was that your first time in the States? No, no. Quite lucky. A lot of personal travel over here. I love it here. I really do. Um, and then with the military, my first tour of Afghanistan was uh, with the US Marine Corps. Um, the reason I'm down here, um, just outside San Diego, I spent time with uh, my intelligence officer opposite number, uh, a captain in the US Marine Corps who's now working out at Pendleton. So I was done catching up with him. So my first experience professionally in the U.S. was uh, a training exercise with the, the U.S. Marine Corps before we went out to Afghanistan. So been back and forward here a, a few times. Trend or working your way into your actual transition out of the military. When you transitioned to being an intelligence officer, did it change your career commitment as far as total years? Or was it still an 18-year commitment? No, no. Uh, training to be an intelligence officer is uh, six months. Um, no doubt, cost the taxpayer uh, a couple of a couple of quid, as we'd say back home, but not to the extent of training a pilot. So I think the commitment was uh, a six-year rolling cycle. So uh, you know they want you for six years, and then after that you can kind of sign on. I, th I think it was in two-year chunks. So when you first made that transition to intelligence, were you thinking a career at that time? Yeah. So that's another funny one. As I've said, you know. I was going to be a pilot and that was all I was going to be. And then when that wasn't working out, didn't want to leave the Air Force. Intelligence sounded cool and turned out to be pretty cool. But probably from that day, you've got one eye on, okay, I'm not going to be a pilot. Let's, have, let's give intelligence a go. 
but what else is out there? I think it taught me at a relatively early age for someone that was enthused by uh, aviation that there might be a world outside of you know a cockpit. Um, so working in a, in a ground role in intelligence, that's really when you start to look at, okay, what else is out there? You're in this military bubble and it can be all encompassing because you're, you live and you breathe it, you sleep it, you know, your, your colleagues or your friends, you leave work, you're in the officer's mess and you're now living with these people, you end up vacationing with them, you're on exercise with them, you go to war with them, it's everything. Um, and you get the blinkers on and certainly for me anyway, it's, it's all I knew from, you know, the end of school and then university with what I was doing there, it was the military. So to try and like pierce that bubble of, you know, what could be outside, it, it takes quite a lot of, a lot of oomph to, you know, okay, let's, let's understand what, could there be something else? Um, so that's really when you start to look, I think, when, when flying wasn't going well. I'll go intelligence, but let's let's start to just have a look at what else might be out there. And you bring up something that that is important for me to get across, and, and I'm glad you brought it up organically. You mentioned that it's very easy to get into your bubble, and you all you would, for your example, you just associate with other members of the military, and that's just, your bubble stays very small. Were you aware of that at at that time and were you making steps to like increase your social circle and make sure that you were having influences other than just other military members yeah big style actually um i started to speak to people who had been through that journey before me uh okay what what lessons can i identify what lessons can i learn from these people um and it was very much you know take a step out of your comfort zone um not that it's that scary, you know, taking a step out of the military, but it, it's easy not to, you know, physically take yourself away from that Friday happy hour in the old club or whatever it may be with your colleagues and your friends, you know, go to a networking event with entrepreneurs or go and do something, you know, outside the military, force yourself out of it. It might not be very comfortable. You know, you're used to a way of life and, a, and a, almost a language, a vocabulary. Go and just dip your toe in something else. And I started to do that and, you know, spending more time with friends outside of the military, being interested and engaged in what they were up to and you know where they'd seen success what other exciting things are out there um and and i think that was really important to have a life outside of the military and it meant my ultimate transition out of the military was a lot easier than you know feeling like you're just jumping off a ship into into deep water and then being expected to swim when you were in that first here we call it an enlistment i don't know what sure. you call it but you'd made the transition from pilot to intelligence it then chopped it down into smaller yearly segments as opposed to an 18-year commitment when you were coming up to that end of that first enlistment did you already see kind of the light at the end of the tunnel like you weren't going to stay in or or was there a significant moment that was that caused your pivot and said no nope, i'm going to end this one and i'm going to get out in 10 years yeah um for me probably aided by my initial transition from flying to intelligence was I've got this silly little saying, um, but I, th I think it it holds true. Life is about photos for Facebook and stories for the grandchildren. I didn't want to be in my deathbed thinking I just had one career. Um, a personal opinion, you know, folks that stay in the military, you know, it, it's it's a fruitful career. It's a varied career. It's an exciting career. It's a great career. And I don't regret a day I spent in the military. But for me personally, I wanted to try something different. I knew I wasn't going to be a millionaire in the Air Force, although the way some of my pilot friends are paid at the moment for with retention bonuses, maybe, maybe not. Um, but I knew I wasn't going to be a, mil a millionaire in the, in the military, and I wanted to try something else. 
Um, and because I've already been through a bit of failure in the military, I knew it, failure is not going to kill me. You know, it, it leaves a bitter taste in the mouth, but you get over it. But you're better for it. You learn stuff. So I always wanted to, to have a crack at something else. So did you start making plans or preparations for your transition? Did you know when you were getting out what you were going to go to? I knew I wanted to do something entrepreneurial. Um, and I knew that because I took a long, hard look at things like investment banking, uh, property, um, things my friends were doing, really, you know, easy access to, to understand what other roles were outside uh, of the military. Um, and I'd narrowed down the, you know, that pool of options to entrepreneurialism because I went to a tech conference in Edinburgh. It was an investor conference, a bit like you call it Shark Tank. Back home, it's called Dragon's Den. They were entrepreneurs. Uh, pitching their idea to a room full of investors. It was in a big uh, auditorium. So not just, you know, four or five sharks, but about four or five hundred. You know, this is my this is my idea. I want this amount of money and I'll give you whatever percentage of my business. And I sat there and it was the light bulb moment because there were a string of about 30 entrepreneurs, all with a different idea, all with me sat thinking, gosh, that's a cool idea. Why didn't I think of that? And I left absolutely buzzing from that event thinking, this is really exciting. You know, we all know and love, well, we all know some of us love, you know, Amazon's, Facebook's, all the, all these tech startups. Of course, there are millions of little good ideas out there that haven't come to fruition yet or are just building up that need that support, that need that, dare I say, tenacity, acumen, the sort of, the sort of skill set that you build in the military. Um, the, the ability to, as I say frequently to my colleagues in the company I work for now, roll up your sleeves, get stuck in, make things happen, carry the ball forward. You know, that, that military mentality goes into entrepreneurialism so, so sweetly. It's a great, great smooth transition, that skill set. And you already st stuck your foot in the entrepreneurial pond when you were in college. Did you have a, a mentor or somebody who was your guiding light? Did you know as a young boy even that you were very entrepreneurial in nature? I think... I think, like you say, I think having having dipped your toe in it and realizing that the hardest thing is actually the the act of dipping dipping your toe, taking that first step, getting things started. That's the hardest thing by far. Uh, once you're in it, you've got no other option than to get stuck in. Um, so I think previous experience was really my main motivator. You know, I've done this before. Um, a calculated risk, and it, it came out pretty well. Uh, if, if things go pear-shaped, you know, there are other jobs out there, there are other career paths, but let's give entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneurism uh, a go. Um, and really, my mentor is uh, my, my boss, the CEO of the company that, that I'm with at the moment, because um, he'd kind of been through a similar journey to me, not in the military, uh, but he dipped his toe um, in, in entrepreneurialism uh, a few times before, so he'd learned you know, he did the hard yards um, and then I was really lucky to almost ride his coattail um, and, and learn from him. So he really is my, my kind of main entrepreneur um, mentor. Um, and, and I think you need that because you can get started, but you need you need help. Um, and you see this in Shark Tank right? or, you know, similar circumstances. You don't just take their money. It's the, their experience, their hard won experience, you know, moving that ball, the hard yards um, that if they can impart some of that into you, um, you don't make that mistake and, and you can be, your success can be accelerated somewhat. So it's really important to know that you need help. You can't do it alone. Um, and no shame in asking for help, you know, and, and expertise. And like you say, Paul, you know, mentorship is hugely important and, you know, starting to do a bit of uh, mentorship myself and, and pass some of that on, which is a great feeling. So 
the company you're with now, was that your first venture out of the military or did you do anything in between? Uh, nice little learning experience in between actually. Um, I, I took what I thought was my dream job, which was working for an outdoor sports shop. Um, I refer to that as a pocket money job. Um, I, I wanted a gap where I wasn't, you know, working like a man possessed. So it took about six months out, did a couple of months in India, uh, traveled around. That was awesome. You know, you don't really get the opportunity to, to do that in uh, in the military, obviously, or that amount of time away. Or at least not as a tourist. I, it, well, <laughs> d- yeah, exactly. Yeah, not as a tourist. To be able to kind of go outside the wire and experience uh, things and, and not just be, you know, uh, shopping in the BX every, uh, every other day. Um, so two months in India was cool. And then I got a job um, with a local outdoor sport, shop you know basically selling skis and outdoor gear um and i remember thinking yeah this will be cool you know cushy little job easy easy little number turns out my pride was such that i could not be in my hands and knees fitting uh, a walking boot to some spotty 12 year old (laughs) from one of these private schools that i went to i was probably just as bad back in the day you know and them turning around to their mom saying mommy he's done it too tight or he's not done it tight enough i remember i'm on my hands and knees in front of this child what am i doing so that didn't last very long Uh, but a good again good lessons learned um and then i wanted to do something completely different um so i got into film and tv production uh and again a great skill set transition from what you learn in the military you know are you organized can you turn up on time without question you know will you do the extra uh, the, the extra time and effort to, to get stuff done can you work in a team R- a really nice segue um so very lucky that marvel um of, of superhero fame they were filming one of their films in edinburgh and i got onto the set of that and, and did that for a couple of months um which was a great experience but again I'm not going to be a millionaire doing this, or or if I am, it's going to take a long time, you know, <laughs> working out through the stages. So great to dip your toe in, in different things in between, and um, you know that was always part of my plan, not to just jump straight into the next thing. But I took my six months, bit of travelling, random jobs that I would never have done otherwise, um, and then it was about finding the find, finding the next big thing. And for me, that was uh, a bit fortuitous, but I guess you make your own your own luck in life. Edinburgh is an interesting little hot pot of entrepreneurialism. Uh, There's a company called Skyscanner, um, the first company really to have flight comparison uh, ticket pricing. Um, They are an Edinburgh company um, and a unicorn, so valued at a billion dollars. There's another company uh, now based over here, Fanduel. Um, Surprise, surprise, also from Edinburgh. Um, And they both came out of a building um, in Edinburgh called Codebase. And Codebase is a tech incubator. So it's got probably 100, maybe 200 little companies within this tech incubator from one-man band. Imagine a WeWork, but, you know, a bit bigger. So you've got a one-man band, you know, hot desking, but it's a good idea trying to develop it. And then you've got bigger companies like Skyscanner or Fangio would have been, maybe they take a floor in this building and then they kind of graduate out. A really nice ecosystem full of other entrepreneurial thinkers. You've got support, you've got investors buzzing about, you know, looking for the next best thing. And I saw this building, a few other friends worked for companies in there, and I literally just went on the website and looked through every single company um, looking for the next Skyscanner, the next Fangio. And two stuck out for me. One was doing sport and coaching analysis for the amateur. You see professional athletes now, they've, they've got microchips and you know, part of their kit and everything is tracked, their diet. But this was for you know, school kids, college kids, um, amateur athletes, you know, who want to be better. Great idea. Um, so, was speaking to them, and then this other company, 
um, and I was drawn to them with two simple letters in their uh, on their website CT counterterrorism, which is you know what I did uh, for the majority of my intelligence career. Interesting, a counterterrorism company in Edinburgh, of all places, Sleepy Hollow, Edinburgh. So I started speaking to them as well. Um, and as I kind of flippantly say, uh, I took my boss out for a coffee and he's not been able to get rid of me since. So it just started, there was two of them, two founders, and then I was the next employee. So I can't claim to be a founder. Um, I, I wish I could for all sorts of different reasons, but I was number one employee. And as they kind of sometimes jokingly say, I'm the kind of the third founder. Um, so that's how I got into uh, the company. That's how I found them. And that's how ultimately we met. And I want to give you the opportunity to talk about the the company that you are with now, what the company is about, and more importantly, the product that you offer, because many of my listeners are in the law enforcement space or first responder space and could probably utilize your platform. Yeah, yeah. So we're not solely focused on counterterrorism. Um, the company is Psycom. Psycom, uh, one of the founders... He was a digital forensics specialist within Police Scotland, uh, or policing jurisdiction where I come from. Um, He was the main guy for finding evidence uh, on a computer or a mobile phone. He did that for about 10 years. And there was a massive problem in all sorts of investigations, but specifically uh, investigations into child sexual abuse material. The problem is when you go to a suspect's location, Um, And suspects are no different from you and me, Paul, and everyone else listening. You've got a ton of digital devices in your personal life. You know, I've got a phone in my pocket. I've got uh, a smartwatch. I'll have external hard drives. I've got broken computers. I've got thumb drives. I've got my work computer, a personal computer, et cetera, et cetera, gaming consoles. So when police go into a location, they're looking at, I think the average is something like 18 digital devices in in your average household. The problem is that investigator has to find evidence on these 16 devices. So they've got two options. They can sit there for as long as it takes to look through all these devices, or they can confiscate them all, take them back to their lab, where they tend to go on a backlog for up to, the worst we've heard is two years, while that evidence is waiting to be uh, to be looked at by, by an expert. So back to my founder, he did this for 10 years. He hated this problem. He saw, we're not going to get more and more people like him, more expertise, so expensive, and there's just not enough humans to do this. And because of, if you think about Moore's law, there's only going to be more computing, uh, more hard drives out there to to scan. We've got to be smarter about this. So he went off to university, led a PhD research team for four years, and came up with the technology that really underpins Psycom. And it's the ability to get into a hard drive and find that evidence up to 100 times faster than traditional methods that exist today. So game-changing. Um, Game-changing, not my words, the words of uh, a very senior UK politician when they procured our technology for the entirety uh, of UK policing. So we're about getting into a hard drive or a phone and very quickly finding that evidence. So the investigator doesn't have to hang around there all day. They can be in and out in literally seconds. Or back in the lab, we can use our technology to scan that backlog and find the evidence. And when you're looking at investigations into child sexual abuse material, you know, you don't have to think too hard about the consequences of that data, that intelligence being sat on a shelf for you know any longer than it has to be. You need to find that evidence as quickly as possible to make a difference. Same idea in counterterrorism. Finding that evidence in double quick time could be the difference between, well, life or death. So how many years into it now is the company? So the company is seven years old. Um, like I say, I was there from the start. Um, and it's been, it's been a great journey. It really has from... 
taking a good idea, understanding what market we would apply it to, and then building it from literally a blank bit of paper. Um, albeit the two co-founders you know, uh, ahead of me had, had done some of the hard yards, but then I came in, really no specialization. I wasn't a sales guy. I wasn't a marketeer, none of that. I was just this ex-military guy who could vaguely hold a conversation, <laughs> roll up his sleeves and get stuff done. Um, but the skill set that I had from 10 years in the military, um, like I say, perfect transition, I think, into that early startup phase of we need to get stuff done. You know, if there's a problem in front of us, just like in the military, you don't stop, you don't, you know, you don't start crying and looking for help. You, you, you figure out how to get through it, over it, past it, through it, whatever it may be, you've just got to keep going. Um, so that tenacity thing, again, coming into it, really vitally important, I think, for an entrepreneur. When did you, well... Was your plan to come to the States or and bring the, the representation of the company here or were you sent here? It, it kind of was actually. So my year in Japan, uh, time spent in Vegas before even the old six month jaunt in Afghanistan or Iraq. I love, I love where I live uh, in Scotland, but I love getting out and seeing the world. I'm a bit of an adventurer like that. So I could see from an early stage with Saikom, the UK is, is a huge market for us but the US market easily 20 times as big. So I saw from an early stage, we're going to have to you know, open an office or have some sort of operation over in the US to look after North America. Um, and I always had my eye on it. Um, we grew for the first four and a bit month, uh, years, five years. Then a little thing called COVID happened, which uh, you know affects us all in different ways. Um, and towards the end of COVID, we were doing well in the UK. Um, and I'm not suggesting that we're arrogant enough to think that just because something is working in the UK, it's going to work in the US. But again, with my experience of uh, working in uh, in the military with service people from all over the world, but mostly from the US, I know how you guys tick. Or I certainly know better than your average UK person, having worked closely with you guys. And I just had a good feeling that this is going to this is going to work well in the U in the US. So I said to my boss, look. Let me go over. We'll get a bit of funding together. We'll invest in Graham going over there for a couple of months, right at the end of COVID, to the point where I had to come in via Canada for a couple of weeks before the US would open its doors. So I went through Canada, spent another month and a half going around the US, um, basically just getting our technology, our tools under the noses of well, folks like you, Paul. You know, um, folks in in law enforcement. You know, is this going to work over here? Uh, and it was a super successful trip, that, that two-month trip. And we understood, okay, there's definitely a market for this. We sold some stuff as well. But I'm not really, although I am a salesperson now, um, I'm more about building partnerships. So it's about finding the people who can see our technology, see the benefit, um, and are willing to go on that journey with us as well. So we found some champions in the US, and that kind of set the scene, laid the foundations for then what we have now. Fast forward a year, there's six of us full-time over here in the, U, uh, in the US. I'm the only Brit. And then we're employing five, uh, five U.S. folks all around the country to really start the, the kind of U.S. side of, of Psycom and help investigators catch more bad guys and with any luck safeguard some, some children as well. Is there plans to continue growing the company? Yeah, yeah, big style. So um, the, the, the market is a really interesting one. Um, it's This crime type is sadly very, not going very sadly. anywhere. It's not going anywhere, as you, as you know all too well, Paul. Not going anywhere, getting worse. Um, so, you know, investigators, they need more help from technologies, not just Psycom, the other great vendors in this space as well. Um, so the market is growing. The fact that we can help is, is awesome, but it, it's a huge market. 
the other great thing about Sciacom is there's kind of two sides to the company. So what I'm involved in is helping law enforcement, as I've described. The other cool side of our company is using that same core technology. And if I use just a really kind of uh, easy example, if you jump on Facebook, apparently you're only four or five clicks away from accessing that kind of horrific material, legal material. So we can use our same core technology, apply it to the likes of Facebook. Um, for your listeners, I'm using inverted commas. Um, and we can find that data, that illegal child sexual abuse material. We can find it very quickly. We can remove it. We can block it as well so that that is never seen again. Um, so we can apply our technology to, to wider than just the law enforcement arena. And of course, especially in the West Coast of the States, we're not far from uh, where these companies are based. So the future looks really exciting for, for helping not just law enforcement, but you know the online society. It's a huge problem. The, the policing of internet, um, it's just grown and grown and grown. Um, and we think that the internet is at its seatbelt moment. Seatbelt moment being, I think it was Volvo, they introduced the seatbelt, folk are thinking, hang on, I'm, I'm not wearing a seatbelt, I'll decide if I'm going to be safe or not in my car. You look at us where we are today, you would never dream of getting in your car without buckling up. The internet is at its seatbelt moment. If we don't do something now, it's only going to get worse. There can be no doubt, child sexual abuse material does not, it, there is no place for it, but it, it cannot have a place in the internet where anyone can jump on, either on Facebook, and we're not saying that Facebook is uh, right. Whatever platform. Whatever platform, thanks. Um, or the dark web, you should not be able to access this material. It, sh it just shouldn't be. So it's great to be involved in a company that is very values-driven, values values-led, that is trying to do something about this, this heinous, heinous crime. So in, in the sense of growth and, and thinking about transition, the, the members that you've onboarded that are here in the States, are they former law enforcement, former military? You mentioned you're the only Brit on the team, but what is the company looking for if somebody has an interest in, in doing the work that you're doing? Yeah. Yeah. So we've got, uh, two ex law enforcement, uh, one ex Marine, um, that skill set, like I've said, from policing, from military, um, is pretty much exactly what we're looking for. Um, any of your listeners that are, have any interest in, in what I've said today, please definitely check us out, psycom.com, C-Y-A-C-O-M-B. Uh, keep an eye on what we're doing. We will be growing. And we're looking for, um, not specifically today, so I'm saying keep an eye on us, um, but in the future, we're going to be looking for ex-law enforcement uh, expertise that can you know, walk the walk, talk the talk, and help us access you know, our customer base, which is predominantly uh, law enforcement and security services. Um, so keep an eye um, and you'll, you'll be able to find me on LinkedIn if anyone's interested in, in learning more about Psycom. And is your long-term goal to stay here in the States? So I have a five-year visa. Uh, last weekend, um, I turned a girlfriend into a fiance. Congratulations. Was, uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, one of the happiest days of my life. Absolutely amazing. Uh, she's American. Um, the five-year visa, we'll see how it goes. If I had to put uh, my you know, pen to paper and I probably looking at two years over here, get Psycom up and running. Um, and then at that stage, we're, well, if, if we're blessed and we've got kids, uh, probably um, start a family back in Scotland. But uh, I love it here. I absolutely. Uh, it's one of the best moves of my life so far. Um, so long may it continue, but the rough plan, two years, maybe head back. Now that you've had a little bit of time under your belt, any regrets leaving the military when you did? That is a cracking question. Um, and actually just last night, catching up with my buddy from uh, the U.S. Marine Corps who I was in Afghanistan with. Um, the the things I miss most about 
the military life, and I imagine it's the same in policing as well, uh, camaraderie. You, you're told it a lot, you know, you, you speak of it when you're in there, but you don't appreciate it until you've left. Um, how how strong that 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 brotherhood is, um, and definitely something I missed. Especially I think going from you know a squadron of uh, of airmen to a tech startup with three of us. Um, you know my two founders, they're they're great guys, but uh, you know they're technical computer engineers. Um, I've come from you know this circus of banter is the grease between the wheels and I'm not saying my founders don't have banter in them, but you know, three of us in an office working on technology, um, you know, Friday comes along quite keen for, you know, anyone for a beer before we head home on Friday. Um, and you look around and it's sometimes quite a lonely uh, office. Now we're about, uh, I think just south of 50 folks. So we've grown, but that camaraderie is, it's not, not a regret really, but it's just something I noticed that that's one of the main things that I miss about, uh, military and, and kind of service life. And just to kind of wrap this up, you made mention of how you kind of saw your exit and, and it was always something for you that wasn't far away. It, it literally was your tomorrow, just whenever tomorrow was going to come. And you were making steps, even if it was just thinking about what am I going to do afterwards? And then you took some steps as you were approaching that transition. Any last bit of advice for anybody who's, you know, especially military members that are coming up to their transition? Yeah. Um, and at the risk of sounding like a cliche here, uh, the three main things that made all the difference for me, um, hugely important, network, network, network. Um, and that network of networks. So I remember taking some advice from uh, an old friend from school who was in the, the army. And as he transitioned, he had an Excel spreadsheet and he had, he, he numbered it one to 20 and it was blank. And he, he gave himself a goal by the end of the month or whatever, he wanted uh, 20 names in the, in the sector that he wanted to go into it was banking. And every time he would go and meet someone, the, the final thing he would ask is, could you give me an introduction to another two people? Um, and that 20 became 60 and just grew and grew and grew. And of course it stopped growing at the point where he met someone through that, uh, that technique or that tactic um, that offered him a job. Um, but also don't just stop at that point and bin it because you'll never know when that network is going to come in handy again. Um, the network of networks is hugely, hugely powerful. Um, and that is from what I've seen personally and from others as well, that's where your next job is going to go, uh, is going to come from. And don't be shy. Everyone likes to be called an expert, right? You know, reaching out to someone on LinkedIn, picking up the phone to someone, Hey, you've got some expertise in whatever sector that may be. I'd love to buy you a coffee and just ask you a bit more about that. If someone comes to me and asks me, hey, Graham, you're an expert in this. Well, the first thing I probably think is imposter syndrome. The second thing I think is, all right, yeah, well, maybe I do have a few things to say. And if I'm going to get a, a coffee, maybe a donut out of it as well. Sure thing. That's, that's worth, you know, half an hour for me. So don't be shy. Go out and ask, ask folk for advice, you know, find out what you can from them. Be interested, be engaging, um, you know, be pleasant to them. And, and doors will open, I guarantee it. You bring up a great point in that the word expert can easily be thrown around and, and, and almost lose value. But I think one of the things that, that our community, military, first responder, we do an injustice to ourselves is you have to remember being an expert just means you know a little bit more about that topic than the average person. So instead of thinking that 
oh, I'm not an expert because of this grandiose title. Embrace what you've learned in what you've done and realize that you do have an expertise. Yeah, big so. Uh, it makes me think of my, my dad's three words uh, for, uh, for a job interview. You know, go in there and be, be honest, be humble, and be hungry. Um, and I think it's that middle one, you know, be humble. Like, I'm not an expert. I've been doing this for a bit of time. Here's what I've learned. Maybe, maybe you can get something from that. You know, I think that's a, that's a really important kind of sentiment to have. But also understanding that expertise, if we take what you were just saying there, Paul, expertise is just around the corner, you know? Um, what's the difference between someone that knows a little and someone who's considered an expert? It's the time and the dedication that they've spent, you know, understanding whatever that topic is, you know? Pick up a book. Get online, you know, spend time, go and do free work experience, you know, um, hone, hone your skills in that because you're either going to become an expert or you're going to realize this isn't for me. A bit like working in that outdoor shop or working in film and TV, you know, in, in that pathway to becoming an expert, I'd, I'd like to think I've got a bit of expertise in what I'm doing at the moment. But if it wasn't for me, I would have found that out pretty quickly and I would have realized, you know what, I've tried it, not for me, lesson identified, I'll move on to something else and I'm better for it. Have you been able to find any uh, or get in any snow skiing here in the States in all your trips? No, I think I'm a kind of shock of capture of being in a, in a climate where um, the first thing I do every morning isn't worry about, you know, um, how many thermal layers or a jacket or hat. I'm going to, you know, sometimes in February, I could go out wearing shock horror shorts in Edinburgh, unheard of. Um, so this might well end up being the first year uh, of my of my life really since probably about the age of five where I won't get some snow skiing in, but it's only what, you know, mid-March. So there's time yet. If anybody's got any more questions for you, how can they get in touch with you? Uh, probably the best way to find me is on LinkedIn, Graham Little, uh, um a simple search will pop up. Um, I, I'm really passionate about the, the whole transition experience. Um, entrepreneurialism isn't going to be for everyone, um, but there's a whole world out there um, of exciting challenging, rewarding careers, jobs, adventure to be had. Um, and if I can give anyone any sort of advice, uh, I'm more than happy to, you know, drop me a line. Might cost you a coffee and a donut. I appreciate your time, sir. Pleasure. Thank you for taking your time to listen to the podcast. I truly hope you enjoyed it. Not only is the podcast available on audio platforms, but you can also watch it on YouTube at the Transition Drill Podcast channel. Please subscribe for future episodes. The best way you can help the show is by getting the word out. If you think somebody else might enjoy it, I would appreciate it if you would share it with them. Also, if you have the time, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a rating. I welcome your feedback, both positive and negative. You can also go to the website, transitiondrillpodcast.com, and through the contact tab, Send a message directly to my email with any comments or suggestions. Thank you again, and I hope you tune in for the next one.